Welcome to Farmer Talk Radio Podcasts. I'm pleased to share a panel discussion from the 2022 Craco Conference on the topic of workforce planning and reducing churn to support and promote clinical research as a care option. For more information about the Craco Conference, our editorials, podcasts, and webinars, please visit cracoevent.com. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Thanks so much for coming to the final session of the seventh annual Craco conference. And uh, congratulations to Andrew and the team for putting on just really another phenomenal conference. We're really happy to be here. And we are the bridge, the final journey between ice cream and cocktails. So if you can hang out with us <laughs> for 30 minutes, just, you know, we, the, the little boost you have from your ice cream, we're going to get you right through to your to first sip of your cocktail. A quick question for all of you. Who has lost staff in the last year? At least one person. You can keep your hands up if it's two. Three, four, five. Okay, well, you're in the right place. So we really want to take some time today to talk about what are the innovations that are going on around bringing new staff in. Uh, how do you keep staff? How do you retain staff? And then we do want to talk a little bit about the hybrid workforce, too. And for those of you who might have fully remote workforces, just by way of introduction, I'm moderating the panel today. I'm Suzanne Rose. I'm the Executive Director of Research at Stanford Health, not to be confused with Stanford or Sanford. Stanford is in Connecticut. We're an independent hospital about 30 miles north from New York City. So whatever happened in New York City during the pandemic did not stay in New York City. And we were one of those hospitals that was very hard hit by COVID and all of the other impacts to staffing and clinical trials that, that went along with it. So I really feel like we have saved the best for last as far as our uh, expert panel uh, goes. Let me introduce them very quickly and then we'll get started. So uh, Jennifer Scheller is sitting next to me. She's the AVP of Global Clinical Trial Operations at Merck. Susan Landis is in the middle. She's executive director of an organization you may have heard of called the ACRP. And Dr. Brian Sevier is senior associate director of research operations for Yale Center for Clinical Investigation. So the first topic that we wanted to talk to the panel about was really in innovations and in bringing in new staff. So Brian, we're going to start to talk with you. I know that at Yale, you have started really early on with high school students. And I'd love to hear about what your program looks like and whether some of the opportunities that uh, other sites might be able to tap into. Absolutely. Thank you, Suzanne. Um, thank you also, everybody, for kind of hanging out all the way through to the end with us again. Uh, so with Yale University, we actually uh, operate with a cultural ambassadors program. Um, we've got some of our friends and colleagues here. I know our cultural ambassadors program are working with uh, Junta Progressive Action as well as the AME Zion uh, Church in Connecticut. But we've got partners at Morehouse College as well as with Duke University also with that AME uh, relationship. But through that cultural ambassadors program, we've hosted uh, for two years in a row now a summer interns program. Um, so how do you do a summer interns program in the middle of a pandemic? What's the answer? Virtually. Um, but what we've done is we've actually created a competitive application process starting out with high school students all the way through um, sophomores in college. And successfully, we have received, I think in back-to-back -back years, 280 applications last year, 300 applications this year. Uh, but we've put 50 students through this program already, and we're introducing them our youngest one this year was 15 years old, and we're introducing them to um, what is clinical research as a profession, not what is clinical research as in I want to be a doctor, because they all think they're going to be doctors, engineers, or lawyers. 
Um, but what is it that is, is new to them and, and novel to them? So uh, trying to understand what are the opportunities inside the clinical research profession. Yes, those might actually lead them into biomedical careers at some other state uh, further down the road in their education, but we've uh, seen some amazing, amazing projects come out of this. So again, we're talking about high school students and a four-week <coughs> crash course introduction uh, to clinical research, and we actually required that they complete a group project. So there were three group projects this year. One, now again, mind you, I just talked about high school students. How do we improve adolescent recruitment using epic messaging? We're talking 15 to 17-year-old kids. That's, that's a pretty, pretty hefty topic, including the whole run of privacy, make, taking GCP. Um, taking a bunch of extra courses on top of what they're doing with us in a four-week cycle. Another project was using social media as a recruitment platform for, again, adolescent recruitment. And the third group was a group of our youngest students actually trying to establish STEM training around clinical research for high school and middle school clubs within the school setting. Uh, so again, these uh, amazing young people came up with some fabulous ideas, things that we want to implement and uh, sort of give them some legs and some investment to make sure they keep going. But I think really the biggest part of this conversation is because we connected it through our cultural ambassadors program, we have heard a lot today about diversity. I'm gonna add one more letter to our DEI acronym and you need, you need to add A to it because it's access. It's not just access to healthcare, but it's access to training, education, <coughs> and an opportunity for a career in the future. So that's sort of the, the place that we're starting is let's train them in high school and middle school and get them introduced to this uh, profession. That's excellent. Jennifer, we're gonna to move to you next. Merck also has a lot of initiatives ongoing uh, to bring new people into the workforce. So what is Merck doing and what is your role specifically in all of that? Yeah, sure. So I am in a new role today, but previously, as of a few months ago, I was head of operations for the U.S. and Canada, so all the field operations. A pretty big team of 1,100, and um, I had been asked to present to the Merck R&D interns to share my career journey and, you know, how did I get into clinical research, which I don't know about you, but for, I think for most of us, it's we sort of stumbled upon it through, you know, somebody who knew the industry or what have you. And then as I, I finished my presentation, I was really, I had a lot of excited students saying, oh, I, that sounds really interesting. I, I'm a biomedical engineer. I'm, you know, in sciences. I don't want to be a physician or a nurse practitioner or a nurse or what have you. I didn't know this was even an option. And then I thought, oh, I don't even have a job where <laughs> you could come in entry level because pharma has evolved over the years and we sort of um, only sought out senior level CRAs and we created some really bad behaviors. So we developed under my leadership an entry level program. We uh, changed job descriptions and built a formal mentorship and training program and we've been in great partnership as highlighted earlier, the importance of nonprofits. So ACRP has been a primary source for us for training materials and development and we've successfully grown the program. We have multiple cohorts coming in. It started with just our interns and now we go all over the country. We have a very diverse group coming in. And just to add to that, so we've, you know, we've really built a funnel coming into our industry team, but we recognize the challenges sites have and you know, SCRS put out the letter, the open letter to sponsors you know, to stop recruiting your coordinators as the primary source of your talent. And um, so our entry level program for us is our primary source of coming in. But in parallel, we thought, what else can we do in the site ecosystem? So we've worked with the ACRP team and 
we're now going to be offering entry-level training in different geographies across the U.S. within communities, not specific to Merck at all. It's really just investing in the ecosystem. It's a theme today that we all need to come together, do things differently. And we'll also be doing the CRC training, so we're going to do four cohorts over the next year, um, you know, really targeting communities, minority communities, some of our diversity partner sites in that realm. So it's really hitting, you know, the industry teams, plugging some of those, uh, filling some of those funnels, and then doing what we can in the site ecosystem. I know there's more we can do, but um, proud to, to share that we'll be kicking that off now. So Susan, Jennifer touched upon the involvement of the ACRP so far, but I know there's a lot more that the ACRP can offer in terms of pathway into the profession. So you could probably speak over an hour on this very topic because there are so many great opportunities. But uh, what, what, are, what, what is ongoing and any juicy gossip as to what might be on the horizon um. ACRP is doing? I don't know about I don't know about juicy gossip, but um, if you don't know, uh, we have a problem. It's an urgent, critical need globally for a workforce. Um, of course, we're not considered a profession in um, our industry is not considered a profession, so we don't have statistics on that. Um, the closest one I can get to is in the next year, the hospital association estimates they'll have to replace two hundred thousand nurses in one year. So I think we're similar to that. We need more CRCs. So as ACRP, we take this critical, global, urgent need very, very seriously. We start with what we think is a journey, and the first thing is someone who knows absolutely nothing about clinical research. So um, most recently, we introduced Ready, Set Clinical Research, which is a toolkit that anybody can use. Um, we started out by saying, we're going to change this. We're going to develop the next generation of clinical researchers. And I think some of you know that I'm fairly new. And I said, we're not going to do it alone. It's going to take all of us um, to come together to, to address this. What is an infrastructure issue? We talk a lot about trial infrastructure. Um, we don't necessarily talk about the workforce as a part of that. Um, the second thing that we did in the past year was last year we ran a, a pretty incredible pilot with Mass Bioed, where 10 sponsors um, sent students into Mass Bioed. They took a 12 week program. They came out of that program and they were promised a year of on the job training. Some of those sponsors have already hired the people that came out of the program, but we challenged ourselves and we said we did it in 12 weeks. Can we get it even lower than that? So we developed an early talent training program that is now three weeks. We piloted that program. Merck audited the program for us. Um, and now we have what is called an early talent training program for blended learning. Um, I would say the other critical thing that happened this past year was um, we ran a think tank in April where the hypothesis was the issue behind, the root cause behind this issue of not having enough or the next generation of clinical researchers was the fact that not enough people know about it. Well, actually, what happened is we realized that we are pretty much shooting ourselves in the foot with a barrier that we put up in the industry, which is the experience barrier. So Charlene Trainer with Durham Tech told me that she graduates 100 people a year with an associate's degree in clinical research and they cannot find jobs. 
because they cannot get their resume to the top of the pile because they don't have experience. So what came out of that is this very serious discussion about an alternative path to experience, which we are exploring today. There are other ways. We have scholarships. We have our ride for diversity. We have a diversity advisory council, uh, which is about to publish a piece on um, in response to the FDA guidance. Um, but across the board, uh, we take this issue very seriously. One thing I do want to say um, is, you know, protocol through the FDA guidance is not the only path to diversity. Um, clearly, based on the Tufts a report that came out, um, hiring a diverse staff is something you can do immediately. I also want to draw a data point from that study, um, which wasn't mentioned today, was of the respondents of that survey, only 22% believed that having a diverse staff was important to diversity in the trial. So we have a lot of education to do at the site level and at the clinical research level. Um, my request to all of you today is if you haven't given your team's inherent bias training, we would like for you to start there. Um, it's one small step that you can take um, to help impact that. Thank you, and I can attest we use the ACRP resources for all of our interns, and piggybacking on Brian, we also have a very robust internship program. It goes all year round. High school students are there for the summer. But we've actually created our own little farm system where we've hired four people from those internships who might have been thinking of going a different career. A lot of them say, I'm going to come in. I just want experience. I want to go to medical school or graduate school. And they've stayed in clinical research, or they're taking some of their graduate-level classes at night because we do offer tuition reimbursement. So it's a nice, it's been a really nice way to, to bring in staff. So bringing in staff, we're going to start talking about how do you retain staff and what are some of the unique things that each organization is doing around that. So Brian, we'll start with you and some of the opportunities you have with your team to keep them around. All right. Well, one of the first things I'll say is I've recently joined Yale as a 100% remote employee. So I'm at Yale's South Campus, just outside of the University of Florida. Uh, in Gainesville, Florida. Oh so uh, it's a heck of a commute. I wouldn't recommend it to anybody. Uh, so Yale, I think, actually, prior to the pandemic, had already sort of married itself to the idea that we needed to have a remote or a virtual workforce. So that in itself, and I know that seems odd, but I have to tell you our workforce views that as a benefit and a privilege. So how do we do that in a way that helps with retention? Um, now let's also face it, CRCs that are doing patient contact and enrollment and consenting, if we're not talking about DCTs in most cases, that group has to be in person. So how do you balance the demands and the volume, the churn, if you will, of who has to be there constantly in person, but then how do you also distribute that same issue or that same uh, balance, if you will, to those that have the benefit of being remote? So one of the things that we've talked about, and it's, it's been a big push, I know our friends at Duke have done this, our friends at UAB have done this. Um, I, we were working on it at Florida as I was leaving, but you have got to be intentional about establishing a job ladder. Uh, to your point a second ago, we aren't yet defined as a profession. So how do you create a professional track for somebody that fell into clinical research. They don't have a bachelor's degree in clinical research administration or as a CRC. So you've got to get innovative, you've got to get creative. Obviously, in, in our case at Yale, or in, as is the case with most other academic medical centers, there's this very staunch process and bureaucracy of how do you create a position description? How do you create the next step up? What do you add to it from an intensity of workload 
or how many people do they have to supervise or how many years of experience or degrees do they have to have to move to the next level. And I think we have to get out of that mindset. We have to get out of the thought that you have to be a nurse to be a CRC. Sorry for saying that out loud, but I'm a guy with three degrees in agriculture running a clinical research operation. So let's figure that one out over cocktails. I'll fill you all in. Um, so I, I think it's really around the mindset. The foundation has to be innovation, creativity, and you have to reduce that churn. We are burning our folks out. So how do we give them some level of benefit? In some cases, remote isn't even a monetary benefit, but it's something that's valued. Um, and it's not an entitlement. I think it's really something that's beneficial to our teams. Thank you. Jennifer, at Merck, you've been really involved with building retention into hiring. And I love that term, because it is something we should be thinking of from not even the second the employee walks in the door, but even before they've, they've come on board. So we'd love to hear what Merck is doing to, to foster that. Yeah, in our, our early talent program, we recognize, you know, people are hungry. These grad, re, new graduates are hungry to grow, and we actually have to turn them over at a year, a year and a half to, to other roles. And, you know, with that, we've created sort of a junior CRA position. It's not novel. It's, it's out there at other companies, but we use the ACRP CRA core competency program training to do that and couple people up with mentors. We have a lot of senior folks especially in the U.S. workforce. I mean, there's, when you look at sort of your age distribution, at least in my organization, they're probably having about 10 people retire a year. Um, so really plugging that in, but matching that amazing skill and wanting to teach, you know, with our um, earlier talent coming in the way. And then over time, you know, aside from the, the CRA pathway in industry, we started building other associate roles. Like we have regulatory roles, um, you know, and we just put sort of pathways and training programs. And up front, we share those pathways and we do virtual career fairs so people can learn about others. We actually do uh, webinars with, with ACRP too on different career options, but there's so much you can do in clinical research and being able to show that and, and sharing a day in the life um, you know, is really important uh, for talent because this is really what they're eager to do as long as you're investing and growing. And I think the remote aspect, my U.S. workforce was always remote. You know, aside from the pandemic, people are like, oh, what are you going to do with the pandemic? And we've always been remote. But I have to say, having those face-to-face -face interactions are still so important. If you have money to do even a local event of some sort, uh, we get so much out of connecting. You feel it even in these types of environments. And, you know, we have a team spread across the country. We, we ask people to host local lunches, small things, just to keep people connected. But the other piece, too, I'll just add is, you know, as, as we sort of evolve in our careers and prepare for the next group coming in, you know, I really invest a lot in mentorship. And every month I, I target to get out there with somebody in the field just um, to learn, to teach, to also learn what we can do better internally. And we've also, I've also started doing reverse mentoring where people then come into the office and shadow me for the day. And, you know, that's the kind of stuff as leaders we can really make a difference on people engagement and, and teaching, giving back. And a, a big part of a lot of our journeys is education. So I don't think I'd be where I am today if I didn't get that invitation to my very first clinical research meeting, which is the MAGI meeting, then I'm frequent a flyer at the ACRP meetings as well. So Susan, can you talk to us a little bit about the education that the ACRP provides? And we've also talked in our, in our prep meetings about the affordability of the education and, and how do we start to break down the barriers to letting that education be affordable to, to anyone who wants to learn about clinical research or progress their career? 
Sure. Um, I am, um, for those of you who don't know, I'm not a clinical researcher. I've worked very closely with you for years upon years, and um, I think your journey is absolutely amazing. The reason why I took the job at ACRP is because we wouldn't be where we are today without you. I've also noticed that your journey is very individual. You make decisions to grow. So at ACRP, we try, and we're trying even harder now to map to your journey um, through professional development. For those of you who are wondering what you could do for people for retention, think about supporting them in their professional development, and that includes, obviously, certification. Um, we've learned that certification is a really personal, professional decision, um, so we do that. Um, the other thing that we talk a lot about are um, two things. One is access and advancement. Um, Ashley Moultrie at Javara said to us at the think tank, you all are assuming that everyone starts in the same place, and we don't. So you really have to meet people where they are in terms of the access that they get to clinical research. And then you really have to support them through mentorship, through professional growth, um, through access to education um, for them to advance their careers. And um, I think that we've laid out, um, again, we lay it out in terms of a journey um, so that you can come in and take whatever you need at the time in order to grow um, and develop. It's really important to remember that not everybody wants to advance. And most of us are sitting in this room because we are investing in our careers. We certainly have people on my team who are just happy where they are. They just want to be in that one level. They don't want to grow. They don't want any leadership positions. So it's finding ways to support them, keeping them happy. And part of what we've done is many of our staff did have to go remote, but I have a heavily clinical staff and myself. We stayed in the hospital when, when COVID hit and we were there day in and day out. So there was an immediate dichotomy between the people that were remote and the people that were on site working 12, 14, 16 hours a day. So it, it really just turned the team upside down. And what we've tried to do coming back from that is no one gets to be fully remote anymore, but we do have levels of, if you're not clinical, you can be on site two days a week. If you are clinical, you have the opportunity of one day a week, maybe flex to two, based on what the climate of, of the research is looking like. So we have a lot of growing pains with that. I feel like every time you give something, it's like my teenage daughters, they want more. So you know, you, I'll buy you this shirt. Well, how about these pants as well? How about the, the next thing? So. Shopping with them is a horrible ordeal, but they spend a lot of money for people who uh, don't have jobs, but uh, <laughs> uh, it's, it's been really challenging. And for me, I would love everybody in the office all day. That just doesn't work anymore. We heard that earlier, that the, the five day a week in the office is a thing of the past. It's just not, it's just not gonna happen anymore. So uh, I, we have a few more minutes left, but Brian, how are you dealing? You're obviously doing great down in Florida. <laughs> Your team, we've talked a little bit about that. Is there anything else you wanna add about adjusting? How do you team build? If your staff is mostly virtual or hybrid, how's that going? So the team building thing is interesting, and, and not that I want to wish another Zoom meeting on anybody, <laughs> but you have to find ways, and if you're in a leadership role, you have to be intentional about having those water cooler moments. Um, we don't start meetings off sometimes with straight up business. It's how's the dogs, how's the kids, how's the husband, the wife, the partner, what, what is that situation in that person's life? And I think 
maybe that's intuitive to me because I don't know if y'all have figured it out. I'm decently gregarious and I want to know who you are and how you are. Um, but if that's not your nature, you have to, as a leader, make that your nature because people still want to connect. So I think that's an important thing just at a personal approach level. Uh, the other thing is, is, you know, don't be afraid to use the office team's account as a water cooler chat session. Um, post your pictures from the weekend. Who just took a vacation? Tell us all about it. No, that's not what it was intended for, but dang it, let's leverage it because it benefits that interactivity and that networking. So those are things that we've tried, and it's worked. And Jennifer, your team, you said, has been mostly remote. So how do you get that team engagement? Yeah. So for people who might be struggling now with fully having remote teams, what are the important takeaways they can take home with them? Yeah, staying engaged in meaningful ways, and there is Zoom fatigue, you know, allowing people to take a break from Zoom and, you know, listen versus having to always see oneself, and I think I've seen more of myself in the pandemic than I, I've cared to in noticing things, but, uh, you know, we also do things like everyone's busy, especially in clinical research, so, you know, we do town halls every quarter just to kind of show what's happening across the organizations, big organization, but then we give people the afternoon off, you know, it's like, Take the afternoon and off. We have all these wellness programs, and I know you don't tap into because you're so darn busy, but you have, we block their afternoon like six months in advance so people can you know, just take time to look at what all the things we offer as a company. And the other piece, too, is the, the connectivity. So we build like local um, internal Yammers, our sort of internal uh, social media feed, and so we have you know, a Yammer for the Philadelphia area and different geographies so people can connect and do those lunches. And we've also done random coffee connections. So we just have like our admin will say, send out a survey who's interested and pair people up. So during after that town hall, then you have your coffee connection to meet somebody new. And it's the people component is always, it's always front and center. And all, no matter how much technology, you know, we put forward, it's the people component is, I would say, number one. Yeah, we started doing Monday morning huddles, and you're not allowed to talk about work. So it's, again, posting pictures about what the weekend was like. We, we're, we're a team of 17, and it's really hard to find conference space in our hospital. We're still pretty restricted. So even if we're all on site, we're typically meeting over Teams, which is so weird to me, but it's just how it is. You can't get conference space. So we do that, and then we kick off our biweekly meetings with fun facts. So it has to be something goofy and silly, or it can be educational. Like last Thursday, it was my turn. It was National Ampersand Day, and that was the favorite thing. We all, I know, right? It's, I know, I always want to do it backwards, but... Uh, yeah, so it's, it's fun things like that. We do off-site events where we get everybody off-site. There's usually grumbling, oh, I have this, I have that. Like, just get there, you'll have fun. And, then, and people inevitably do. We pay them for it, and then we say, take the rest of the day off. We'll pay you for the rest of the day. And I think to finish with, Susan, obviously the ACRP has had to do a little pivoting as well to support a workforce that is mostly remote. So what is the ACRP doing around, um, around that? Well, I think if any of you follow us um, on social media, you, you see that we have a lot of stories from a lot of members about how they're going through this. Um, the other thing I would say, and I, I hope we carry the torch for um, you on this, and my ask is that you would do it as well, just to be a little bit more serious. Um, rec I can't say enough about recognition. Um, I really can't. 
Um, and I can't say enough about how everyone here is responsible for sharing with everybody what an enormous contribution that you and our profession makes to moving medicine forward. Um, so I hope that you get that message from us um, even more in the coming years. Um, but don't forget about that, right? Don't forget um, on the ground, in your day-to-day, -day, on your Zoom calls, don't forget to tell people um, what wouldn't happen if they weren't doing their jobs. And it's just absolutely critical. And I know for one, that we don't say it enough. And I know that your voices um, aren't coming through, aren't at the table, and aren't loud enough when it comes to the transformation of clinical research. Um, so just don't forget about that, that I know that you're each doing your individual roles, but they all roll up to just an incredible contribution um, before COVID and after COVID. So thank you for that. We have time for a few questions, if anyone has questions, or if there's anything else from the, the team, the panel. Thank you. My name is Madeline Cresswell. I'm from Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. Um, and it's not as much of a question as it is just this all-encompassing thought that's been kind of haunting me all day. And um, so we have a unique situation where we have started to partner with local small community hospitals due to a lack of physicians. And so we actually will partner with an institution and say, you can have our ENT surgeon five days a week, you can have our ortho surgeon every Friday. Um, and it's served some of our community surgeon crisis, that kind of thing. Well, so many of our providers are also clinical researchers that now they want to bring their research to these community hospitals. So we have the patient population, we have the interested providers, we're filling this hole of lack of staff, um, and also trying to then bring our trained research staff to these community hospitals, whether it's a two-hour drive, to try and um, not burden these nurses with phlebotomy draws or CT scans or whatever research procedure. But yet I still have so many barriers. I feel like I'm at this next step where we're all trying to get, and I'm almost there. But now it's people, resources, money. They don't even have the right EMR. They do paper orders. They don't have refrigerated centrifuges. Um, so I just have been grappling with this all day. Like I said, it's not a question. It's just a thought. And I'd love to connect with whoever. And maybe this is a topic for next year. But cool. I just feel like I. I rounded it out with, we lost people, and that's how we got to where we are, but now I'm where you all are. Yeah, so. and you know, it reminds me, it's like, with, I don't know if you've heard of the Beacon of Hope, it's something Novartis funded with um, historically black medical colleges, and they funded infrastructure uh, in four of these uh, medical schools to address these gaps, right? So to, to give them uh, staff for 10 years, director and otherwise, and then they invited uh, Sanofi and Merck to participate with them, support their uh, infrastructure build and place trials. And one area that we're working on, and I share this because I imagine sponsors are thinking differently these days on how we can help in the communities. I can tell you community sites are a priority for us. They've been for years, but we're looking now at ways that we can supply services to sites that, you know, through vendors, there's plenty that exist on CTMS, on, you know, somebody due to your contract and budgeting. We already work with a coordinator vendor who provides coordinator resources to sites. So 
Ask your sponsors too, I'm happy to connect, but this is a priority and we're having much different conversations with our legal compliance teams, you know, uh, than ever before, yeah. Right. There's solutions, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you to the panelists and thanks for making it. You're there, you're there. <laughs> ben? Thank you. Awesome. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. For more information about the Craco Conference, our editorials, podcasts, and webinars, please visit cracoevent.com. Thank you.